Esther chapter 3. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the Pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality. So they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, 
one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Uh, And also, I'd love you to see uh, today that Esther is the mediator in this passage. And I want us to think a little bit about a mediator who mediates on our behalf today. Uh, As Lou said, there are a question time this morning, so if you would like to ask any questions about what we've read today or anything else from the book of Esther, please feel free to text them in. I may not be able to answer, of course, but I'm happy to have a go after the service this morning. I want you to begin by thinking about a meme that you might have seen on Facebook, on the internet before. It says something like this, "Uh, sometimes I wake up grumpy other times I let him sleep in. Have you ever seen that, that meme on Facebook? Um, I wonder if you have grumpy mornings. Are there grumpy mornings in your house? Or it might be something that sets you off. Maybe it's that you get up in the morning, you go to have your shower and you see your towel is lying in a crumpled wet mess in the floor of the bathroom. Maybe that sets you off in the morning. Maybe for you it's when you uh, go to the fridge to get the milk out to make a cup of coffee in the morning and there's no milk left. I wonder what it is that sets you off and sets you on that track of having a grumpy mood day. Because I reckon most of us have them at some times, and pretty much with the exception of Jack. I've never seen Jack come to the office without a big smile on his face, but the rest of us, I think we probably know what it feels like to have a grumpy mood day. Well, today we're looking at Esther chapter 3 and 4. The man we saw last week in our reading, Mordecai the Jew... Well, it looks like he's in a bit of a bad mood when we come across him today. As we read in chapter 3 this morning, we're introduced to another person as well. He goes by the name of Haman, and we're told he's the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. 
this man, Haman, is introduced to us as the second most important person in the Persian Empire. And Mordecai, in his grumpy mood it seems, refuses to bow down to him. Now I just want to bring you up to speed because this is a story that sort of unfolds chapter by chapter. If you weren't here with us last week, now this is a story that's set 500 years before Jesus came to earth. It's set in uh, the empire that is Persia. It's the superpower of the time. The Persian Empire stretched from the east right across to the west, 127 provinces. And we met last week the king, King Xerxes, and we also met Esther, Mordecai's cousin. Esther's become the queen of Persia. And although Esther and Mordecai are cousins, Mordecai, he sort of acts as Esther's adopted father in this story because Esther's own dad had died. It's important to know that both Esther and Mordecai are Jews, ethnically. They don't live in Israel, though. They're living in Susa, which is the capital of Persia at the time. Okay, so that's the sort of background with where we've got to. And now we arrive at at chapter 3, and um, we see... Mordecai not bowing down to Haman. Let me read to you from verse 2 of chapter 3. You might like to follow along. The passages are going to be on the screen or you can open up in your Bible to Esther chapter 3. Verse 2 starts this way. It says, All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Now we know from our reading that Haman is the, the second most important person in the Persian Empire and everyone therefore bows down to him except Mordecai. Now as you heard this read this morning, did you wonder why? Why is Mordecai not bowing down? Is it that he's just grumpy? Did he get out of bed on the wrong side that day? Is he in a bad mood? Perhaps if you've read chapter 2, if you were here last week, uh, you might think his upsetness, his grumpiness is is in part because he wasn't recognised for saving the king's life. The story just kind of rolled on. Everyone else is bowing down to Haman except Mordecai. Why? That's the question I think we're supposed to ask as we read this. When I first read through this, uh, this chapter, I was wondering if it was something to do with idolatry and worship. Now, if you've read the book of Daniel recently, you see a similar thing happening there. Daniel refused to to bow down and worship the golden idol that the Babylonian king had made. But I want you to see the situation's a bit different in Daniel to here in Esther. And I want to suggest that what's happening here in Esther, it's not about worship, but more like paying your respects or honouring. It's a bit more like the bowing down in Esther is a bit more like what we might do if we were to meet the queen bow before her or curtsy before her. It's getting a bit old, the series now, but some of you might have seen the West Wing series. And there's an episode in the West Wing in which a woman refuses to stand for the president when he enters into the room. It's a similar thing happening here. It's not about worship, but paying respects to the person in a place of authority. So what's got into Mordecai then? Well, we're not told exactly what he's thinking, but there are some clues in the text that I think will help us understand why he's not bowing down to this man, Haman. You might remember last week when we were introduced to Mordecai back in chapter 2, we were told by our writer of Esther that Mordecai was related to Kish. And I told you last week that that connected him to King Saul. 
I want you to see this morning that Haman is also connected to King Saul. They're not related in any way, but uh, they are very much connected. The clue in Esther is there in, in verse 1 of chapter 3. Haman is taught, we're told, that he is the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now, I want you to see what this means for us. I want you to kind of come with me on a bit of a journey through the Old Testament, because I think if we get our heads around this, the animosity in the story, we'll really understand it a bit better. So I want you to come with me to a few different Old Testament passages, and I think it's worth the Bible flick. We're going to start with Deuteronomy 25. If you, if you can't turn there, it will be on the screen behind me. Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 to 19. Uh, in Deuteronomy, this is Moses speaking. He says, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came up, up out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess his inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Bit of an obscure reading in one sense. What do we learn from this reading? Well, we learn that as the Israelites were coming out of slavery, coming out of Egypt, weary from their long journey, they were attacked by the Amalekites. And the Amalekites here then become, in a sense, the enemies of God's people. Now, you got that in your head? Now, now come with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 1. Now, this is many years later now, but people have indeed settled in that land. Saul's the king. Samuel's the prophet. And Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children, infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now skip down to verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Can you see the, the connection here? Agag was the Amalekite king when when Saul attacked them. And interestingly, this was the battle where, where Saul ended up losing his kingship. He didn't follow Samuel's instruction, and Saul had the kingship torn from him. But the important thing for us as we're reading through the book of Esther is to see that Agag was the Amalekite king. And so Haman the Agagite is a descendant of that king, related in some way. In other words, what we're seeing here is a bitter feud on view in the book of Esther. A feud that's been going on for hundreds of years between Israel and the Amalekites, the Agites. These are bitter, sworn enemies. Now, I'm not sure that in our world today we really know what this is like. And when we think about a feud in our world today, it generally involves a neighbour and a fence dispute or something like that. That's the kind of scale of things that we're talking about when we think about feuds. Or maybe it's to do with Essendon versus Collingwood or something like that. You know, that's the sort of rivalry that we often think about in our world today but this feud goes back hundreds of years and it's deadly 
It's about the annihilation of people groups, really. So with that on view, can you see then why Mordecai doesn't want to honour Haman? Because this is long-term animosity between two people groups. And I think that explains why when we get to verse 6 of Esther chapter 3, the story kind of escalates so quickly. See, when Haman learns that the man who refuses to bow down to him is a Jew, well, he sees an opportunity to do what his ancestors couldn't do. Annihilation. Now, let me just recap for you, because it's a bit confusing, I guess. But we have Mordecai and Haman. They represent two different people groups who are, who are at war with each other, essentially. And for God's people, the Jews in the story, this is a problem, because Haman is now the second most powerful person in the known world. And so we should see the destruction of God's people, almost, at this point in the story, as inevitability. The scene is set for what will follow. Will Haman triumph and wipe out the Jews? And the things seem hopeless from the Jews' perspective. Remember, we're talking here about the Persian Empire and their power and their might and their wealth. And Haman is the second most important person in this empire, an empire that has gold couches and and pavements that are made with precious stones. Seems like all hope is lost. And then we get to verse 7 of chapter 3. And I think it's like a glimmer, just a glimmer of hope for us, a reminder of who is really in control of things. So come with me to verse 7 of of chapter 3 of Esther. I'm going to read it to you. I think it's on the screen as well. This is what verse 7 says. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. Just to help you kind of understand what's going on here, commentators think that the purr was probably something like a dice that was, was being rolled. That's the way in which the lot was being cast. So just imagine a, a dice and you're rolling it and somehow that's helping you to determine what to do. So you're clear what's happening. Uh, Haman here is, is having a, a, a lot cast in order to establish the date in which the Jews will be annihilated. He's doing it by rolling this dice. What I want you to see is, when does it happen? See, they're rolling this lot, they're casting this dice in the first month of the 12th year of King Xerxes. And what does the lot reveal? Which shows the destruction will take place in the 12th month, the longest possible distance, really. So the dice, you could have think, could have rolled and could have come up with the second month or the, the third month, but it comes up with the 12th month. Is that a coincidence? Well, as we read through the book of Esther, our answer must be surely not. Surely this is how we see God providentially at work. Here, providentially at work in the rolling of a dice. And so we have the second most powerful person in the kingdom set up against a displaced and minority group, his sworn enemies, by this stage we should think this is going to be a pushover. And yet in verse 7 we get a glimpse of what lies ahead, don't we? Israel's God is providentially at work in this story. We've seen it a few times already as we've been working our way through this book. Why did Queen Vashti refuse King Xerxes on that particular day? Why is it that Esther happens to be the one who pleases the king? 
Why is it that Mordecai just happened to be in the right spot at the right time to hear the assassination plot? And here we see a roll of a dice giving the Jews lots of time. I want you to see, God's never mentioned once in this book, but he's there just behind the text. We see him in control, providentially acting to save his people. And I think that's supposed to be a wonderful encouragement for us as we read through this book. And yet at the same time, I want to be really clear with you, the providence of God that we see in in this book, it doesn't equate to an easy life or a life without opposition for God's people. God's sovereignty does not guarantee an easy life. And we see that here in the story, don't we? God's people, the Jews and Mordecai, they've they've learnt what's happened. They've learnt that a decree is there for their death. And so what, what does Mordecai do? Well, he puts on sackcloth and ashes and he goes into mourning. I want you to just imagine for a moment what it would be like for them. Imagine if the government just issued a decree that in 12 months' time, you and I would be rounded up and killed for our faith. Right? This is a, it's a terrible story. And given the stories about uh, the Jewish people, uh, many of you, no doubt, will be thinking a little bit about what happened to the Jews in Nazi Germany less than just less than a hundred years ago. Esther played a bit of a role in their story as well. According to the commentator Robert Gordas, this is what he says, the Nazis forbade the reading of Esther in the crematoria and concentration camps. In the dark days before their deaths, Jewish inmates of Auschwitz and Dachau and Treblinka and Bergen-Belsen wrote the book of Esther from memory and read it in secret. I wonder if you've ever faced hardship or or opposition for being one of God's people. I think for us as we read Esther today, it can be helpful to read ourselves into this text. Not always a good idea to do, but sometimes I think it's helpful for us to do that with this text by replacing the word Jew here with the word God's people. For today, that's what we are, God's people. His family, it's not ethnically Jewish but we're told in the Bible that God's family are those who put their faith in his son Jesus. So I wonder have you faced opposition because you're one of God's people? I like to think this doesn't happen in Australia but even here you might have been excluded from a friendship group because you're a God botherer or you might have been passed over in some sort of special task or a promotion at work because you're the one who's less likely to break the rules. Or maybe you've given up sport or other opportunities so that you can spend time with with Christian brothers and sisters. Maybe you've given financially to the point where you're just not able to do something that everybody else seems to be doing. The book of Esther, I think, shows us that God is providentially at work in our world and yet doesn't mean that our life will be easy. Christian life is a life we might feel hated. And I want you to see this is not just something from the Old Testament. This is not just something from Esther's time. Come with me to John chapter 15, New Testament. And here we see Jesus speaking. He says this, If the world hates you, John chapter 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. 
If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. There's a hatred going on in this book of Esther, a hatred towards God's people. And what Jesus says here in John's gospel is that the world hates God's people because they've been chosen out of that world. Chapter 4 of Esther, we see Mordecai putting on sackcloth and covering himself in ashes and, and going about the city wailing loudly and bitterly. God's providence doesn't equal an easy life. And yet, this is a story ultimately in which we see God preserving his people despite their suffering and despite their hardship. We know God will do that because he is faithful to his promises. Midway through chapter 4, Esther comes back into the story. She's heard about, about Mordecai getting around in his sackcloth and his ashes and she doesn't seem to know what's happening, so at first she sends him a new set of clothes. It's, it's kind of ridiculous, really, isn't it? I mean, as if that's what Mordecai needs at that time. He's taking his clothes off and put on sackcloth and ashes to mourn. It's, I think, supposed to be a bit of a humorous point in an otherwise fairly dark section of the book of Esther. But Mordecai sets Esther straight, working through a messenger. Mordecai is able to bring her up to speed. He even passes on to Esther a copy of the edict. Just imagine how she felt reading that, learning about the fate of her people and seeing the king's signature, her king's signature. And so Mordecai gives Esther an instruction, go to the king and plead, beg for our mercy. Plead with the king. Esther, you're both a Jew and the queen. In summary, mediate for us. Speak on our behalf. And initially Esther pushes back, doesn't she? Essentially she says, I can't do that. I, I can't approach the king without being summoned. He'll, he could kill me for that. And, and it's not like I see him every day. It's been, been 30 days since I was last with the king. She's reluctant, isn't she? And you can't blame her either. We know a bit about Xerxes already. We know that he's a, a fickle and a flaky king. We know he makes unpredictable decisions. He could very well kill her. And then Mordecai comes back to Esther and he answers with perhaps the most well-known words in the whole of the book of Esther. If you've ever heard anything about the book of Esther, you probably know verses 13 and 14 of chapter, uh, chapter 4. This is what it says. He, that's Mordecai, sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. These words show us that, that Mordecai knows what Israel's God is like. He, he knows that Israel's God keeps his promise. More so than that, these, these words show us that Mordecai knows of the covenantal promises of God. Because in a way, Esther could have could have thought, you could forgive her for thinking she was safe there. She was the, the queen. Perhaps she'd been weighing up the possibility, if I just stay quiet, nothing will happen to me. And yet Mordecai says, that's not an option for you. 
Why? I think it's a covenant thing, right? God will bless those who are obedient and curse those who are disobedient. In a sense, her safety is tied to, to her being faithful, obedient here. But I want you to see, Mordecai knows God's promises. He knows the promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He knows that God promised to grow for himself a people as numerous as the sands on the seashore. He has great confidence that God will act, that deliverance will come. And he says to Esther, your choice is to participate, to play your part as the mediator. And even if you don't, God will act. Mordecai's encouragement, though, to her is that perhaps this is why you are the queen, so that you can do this mediatorial work for the Jews. Perhaps this is why Vashti was displaced at the time she was. Perhaps this is why all along, Esther, you pleased the king. Perhaps God has so been providentially at work behind the scenes, just as he was with the roll of the dice, that you are now in the position to mediate for God's people. And so what does Esther do? Well, she resolves to go and speak to the king. And I reckon we've got to commend her here for her bravery and her courage. You know, she may well have been placed here for just this thing, just this time. But God's providence is not always easy to see in the moment, is it? In verse 16, Esther's resolve is real. She says, if I perish, I perish. In hindsight, it might be quite easy to see God's invisible hand at work in this story. But at the time, Esther realizes the cost for her here. She realizes she might perish. There is real courage in view here. And in many ways, I think this is kind of the high point in the story. The idea of being placed in a position for a particular purpose for such a time as this. And I reckon that phrase has probably been a powerful motivator for many of us as we go about the lives that we lead. Before we read ourselves into this story, I want to draw a different line. I want us to consider what else is at stake before we read ourselves into this story. See, on one hand, Esther realized that this mediation might lead to her death. But I also see that the other side of the mediation was the fate of the entire Jewish people. Her life, the fate of the entire Jewish people. This is no small thing that's confronting Esther, is it? My suggestion is that many of us have important and weighty jobs here, and you have to make big decisions often. But very rarely would you have to make a decision which would have the entire stake of God's people on the line. And rarely do we have to make a decision where our own lives are at stake as well. And so before we consider what this means for us today, I want us to see the connections between Esther and another mediator. I've chosen to use this word mediator because I want you to remember that 500 years after Esther, another person would mediate for God's people, for all of God's people. Like Esther, it was a big stakes thing the mediator's death might be the result of this mediatorial work but again the sake of all of god's people were on the line now spoiler alert in the book of esther esther doesn't end up dead by going to the king but 500 years later the great mediator jesus would be killed on a cross for the sake of the entirety of god's people he died as a sacrifice of atonement 
In Esther's time, God's people needed a mediator to negotiate a way out of their predicament. Now, our situation today is different, but it's equally serious. Here's the situation. How can God, who is perfectly good and perfectly just and, and perfectly right, bear to create a people for himself that's made up of well, people like you and I, sinful people, stained people? How can a radiant, pure God be in the presence of, of people like us? See, we too need a mediator. And that mediator came in the person of Jesus to reconcile us to God. God is just. He can't ignore our sinfulness. And so Jesus acted as our mediator through his sacrificial death. He died for you and I, but also for the entirety of God's people. Now, I don't think the story of Esther is, is intended to function as an analogy for Jesus, but I do think we're supposed to see the, the connections or the line between Esther and her work as a mediator, and Jesus' work as the great mediator. Esther said, if I perish, I perish. Jesus, the great mediator, came knowing that he would die for God's people, knowing that it would cost him his life. And so when the Jews read the story of Esther, do you reckon they get to the end of it and they want to give thanks for Esther's courage and her willingness to do what she did in the story? I think, of course. How much more should we be thankful and grateful for Jesus' mediatorial work for us? This story should drive us to praise our mediator and live for him. He acted at great cost for us. All right, having drawn the, the line between Esther and Jesus, now let's just think a little bit. Can we draw some lines between Esther and ourselves? Is it ever appropriate to, to wonder if God has placed us here for this particular thing, for such a time as this? Can we read ourselves into the story of Esther? I wonder what you think about this. I think it probably depends a little bit. It depends a bit about how we read these words. I, I think if we are wondering, has God planned for me to be a hero... Uh, Esther's the hero in the story in one sense, isn't she? Has God planned for me to be a hero? Is that what we're wanting to get from this story? Well, I guess some people legitimately are heroes in the world. Esther is a good example of that. Mordecai also. But does God have a plan for each one of us to be heroes? I reckon by definition that would be pretty difficult. Like if we were all heroes, none of us would stand out as, a, as the actual hero, Right? But I also think that perhaps God's call in our life is not so much to necessarily be heroes or to strive for that. Rather from passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Timothy chapter 2, to live quiet and godly lives, to work with our hands. God may have a plan for you to be a hero, but I'm not sure that's the application that we should be looking for as we read our way through the book of Esther. But we do see God's providential work in Esther. And we know from other passages in the Bible, like Ephesians chapter 2, that we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so it seems, at least to some extent, that God has a plan for each of us to do good things in this life. He's planned good works for us to do. And I imagine at times that these good works will clash with the, the world around us. 
At times, those good things will require us to have courage and fortitude like Esther had. I'll tell you a story about one such example. A few years back when I lived in Melbourne, I interviewed a, a man about his work, brought him up onto stage at church, and I was really just interested in helping people get to know this person and to know what he did for a job. So I asked him, what do you do for a job? He said, I work in logistics. I import things, essentially, into the country. Bring all sorts of weird stuff in, cars, statues, all different sorts of things. That was kind of interesting, but I thought in my head, here's a guy who probably doesn't have any Christian stresses in his life. He's about bringing stuff into the country. How hard could that be? But I asked him anyway, are there any challenges in your work in being a Christian? And he said, yes. Next week, my boss is going to asked me to import some pretty extreme pornographic material and I don't think it's the right thing to do. He said, I don't know how I'm going to deal with this, but that's what my situation is next week. Now, I don't know how that story resolved, but, but I remember that because, well, here is a man with good works prepared for him to do in logistics. God might have good things planned for you to do. He tells us that in his word. I wonder what that means for you this week. I wonder what it means as you speak with your neighbours and your friends and as you work in your job or as you go to school. We take from the book of Esther encouragement that God is at work in this world. He's acted definitively in the person of Jesus. We see Jesus as a great mediator who mediated on our behalf to obtain our salvation. We see Esther doing a similar thing for the Jews in Persia. We can also take encouragement from this book, I think, by seeing uh, the life of a Christian, the life of a person living for God, is not always easy or comfortable. And yet we see, don't we, that God has prepared good works for us to do. I'm going to pray that we'd be able to do those good works and that we'd give thanks to our great mediator. Bow your heads with me. Father God, we thank you for this book of Esther and for uh, this entertaining story that helps us to see that you are providentially at control in this world. Father, we want to thank you for the great mediator, Jesus, for his work in securing our salvation, for his work in helping us to be part of your family, for his work in growing a great people for your, your namesake. Father, we thank you that just like we see in this story with Esther, that you have prepared good things for us to do in this, in this life. We don't necessarily think they may make us heroes, but that you have good things in store for each of us. And we ask that you would give us, where we need it, courage and fortitude to live for your namesake. And may this bring you glory and honour. Amen.